This podcast is brought to you by DMX, made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, Epic. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com slash DMX. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. I'm Josh Block. Welcome to Big Law Business. This podcast focuses on the business of law, how the largest corporate law departments and their law firms do business. On the Big Law Business website, we recently published an article by Stephanie Russell Kraft about women who leave Big Law to start their own law firms. We're going to talk about some of the ideas discussed in the piece in two podcasts. This is part one. We begin the podcast by talking about Peggy McCausland. Peggy is a former partner at a big law firm who left to start her own firm. Stephanie tells me about some of the Peggy's experiences in big law as we begin the podcast. So um, Peggy um, worked in big law for a really long time. She was a partner. And uh, some of the anecdotes she shared with me, one of them was sort of like when she hit her breaking point, um, or shortly uh, before she hit the breaking point, was when, you know, she realized that, you know, to really become, you know, she'd been successful in her legal career, but she really wanted to grow her book of business. And she realized that, she you know, like a lot of the business, um, you know, a lot of the clients uh, were uh, you know, a lot of the men had those accounts. And so she was like, you know, I'm going to try to target women in, um, in my community and you know, women in business and try to get them together with women at the firm and try to, you know, do a networking event. And she proposed this networking event, uh, that was supposed to be a day of, uh, golf and lunch and sort of shop talk. Uh, and the, she billed it as tired of being handicapped by your handicap because she realized that a lot of the golfing events that were sponsored by the firm um, were basically like only attended by men. And the response that she got that, that she told me um, from the managing partner at the firm uh, who's uh, no longer there said, where are you going to find a golf course that's going to let a bunch of amateur women hack it to bits? And she was just you know blown away by that response and got kind of frustrated with it and just uh, let you know, let the idea sort of die after that because she just, you know, I think was caught off guard by that, by that response. And then, you know, later, uh, was trying to figure out how to get, you know, build her book of business. And she would turn to some people in the firm and say, Hey, you know, look at this guy, you know, he's such a rainmaker. Like, how did he do it? And and some people said, you know, a lot of these guys just inherited clients. They didn't go out and get all of that business on her own. And she was like, Oh, I, you know, I could, I didn't realize that like if someone had handed me clients then I could, you know, maintain that relationship. And then at one point she, um, she tried to, uh, you know, she brought in business. She worked with this woman, um, you know, a, a client, potential client, and basically courted her over the course of a year. You know, met, you know, met her at a networking event, took her to lunch, figured out like what her needs were, and she signed this person on for some, you know, new legal project. And, you know, when she brought that business in, she went to fill out the form to get the origination credit, and they basically said, oh, you know, this this is already a client, like you you can't get any credit, even though on the form she. She said there were, you know, there was a place to put, you know, percentages for, for different partners at the firm. She just didn't get any credit. And that was sort of the point where she was, you know, she realized, hey, 
I, I can bring in business. I can develop these relationships if that's what I need to do to succeed. I, I'm capable of that, but I just want to do that in a way where I can, you know, keep the money and the credit. And so she went and she started her own law firm. And then a couple years later, her daughter joined her as well. So now they actually have a mother-daughter law practice. And was she able to keep clients? How did this change her bottom line? Yeah, she. Uh, so she took a lot of her clients with her. And uh, now she, you know, she makes com- about uh, 80% or she took about 80% of... Um, clients, sorry, and earns actually a little bit more than she did as a partner because, you know, she was one of the women that, that actually make more on her own. Not everyone that I spoke to for the story um, makes more money now in their own practice. I think the commonality was that the women were able to keep more of them the work, you know, the money that they brought in. And that was what was really important to them. Um, they might be making less overall, but they feel like they have a greater stake in it. But Peggy McCausland said that she was actually able to make more money uh, on her own. Peggy had been a partner at, at Blank Rome. Yeah. Did you reach out to the firm to vet those stories and see what they said about them? Yeah. Uh, so the firm won't comment on any specific stories, um, or, you know, any sp- specific people. But uh, I spoke with um, Christopher Lewis at Blank Rome. He is the um, partner and the chief officer of diversity and inclusion at Blank Rome. And he sort of, you know, admitted that the firms and big law still have a long way to go. He's not unaware of the statistics that, you know, about there are far fewer women in equity partnership uh, positions than there are associates who are coming into big law. And he said that, you know, the firm has evolved a lot. He said it evolved markedly over the past decade. And that, you know, in the past, big law has failed to uh, live up to some of its responsibilities um, to sort of promote, you know, justice, but that that's something that the firm is really thinking about. And, you know, like a lot of big law firms is very aware of and actively trying to correct. Okay. I want to note that we did invite a number of big law firms to participate in our conversation today. None that we reached out to were available at the time that we had the studio, so it didn't quite work out. However, Nicole Galley is joining us. Nicole is a lawyer who spent over two decades in big law before starting her own law firm in 2015. Last year, she launched Women Owned Law, a national networking group for women-owned law firms. Nicole, you heard Stephanie describe that, uh, what Peggy and had encountered. You know, Tell us about your experiences in big law. I came to the the uh, path of starting my own firm in in a bit more of a circuitous way than some of our colleagues, such as Peggy. Um, I spent, as you mentioned, two decades in two different AMLA 100 firms, first in New York and then here in Philadelphia. Um, And in many ways, my experience was very, very positive. Uh, I had some wonderful mentors, got great experience, um, and that's why I stayed as long as I did. Uh, Also figured out, you know, how to manage at least for me, um, the work-life balance. So it was. It wasn't maybe some of the traditional reasons that folks might think um, for women leaving, you know, law firms or big law firms in terms of, of my path. Um, I left Pepper Hamilton actually in 2010, and it was interesting. Uh, a number of the women that were profiled in the story are mentors and friends of mine. Um, Peggy being one of them, and she had just maybe about three years before started her firm, I think her daughter, Trish, who is someone I had actually worked with at Pepper, uh, was either about to or hadn't quite joined her firm yet. And so back then I was thinking about starting my own firm, but the nature of my practice was such uh, doing very large, complex litigation, particularly patent litigation, that I couldn't really envision a way uh, that that would be feasible. And, you know, much like some of the other comments that had 
been uh, sort of shared in the story. Back then, especially, there weren't a lot of role models of women leaving big law to start law firms. And it really seemed like a daunting task. It it definitely seemed like something that was going to be a lot more than I was willing to take on, particularly at that point. I had pretty small children. Uh, I had uh, my son was three, my daughter was six. And uh, starting a business, which is what having a law firm was, just didn't really seem to make sense. Um, but right around the time that that happened, Fran Grayson, another woman mentioned in the story, uh, was starting her firm. So I was I was intrigued and you know stayed in touch with these folks. And uh, over the course of the next few years, I sort of went the uh, entrepreneur light uh, approach, if you would call it that. I elected to join two different firms that were not headquartered in Philadelphia. One was an IP litigation boutique firm that has actually since been acquired uh, by a large firm. And the other uh, is a a very well-regarded approximately 175 uh, lawyer Cleveland firm, also high-end folks, a lot of former big law folks there. Um, Really enjoyed my time in both of those firms, but the pull of starting my own practice, having more control over, uh, and and by practice, I mean my own firm, having more control over the business decisions um, that, you know, I wanted to make for my practice. One example is I had a strong interest, which I do now, in having uh, various fee structures. So I do a combination of of contingency fee, hourly work, fixed you know fee work, depending on the matter. Um, being able to take control of those kinds of choices and, and decisions was something that was very appealing. So in 2015, I took the plunge, uh, and I haven't looked back. It was really the best decision I made. Um, but it was really sort of like the slow boil that you see with lobsters, really. You sort of start to, to kind of move into it slowly, and once that entrepreneurial bug hits, um, I think it's very hard, just like any other person starting a business, to you know let go of that and let go of being able to control your destiny and, and make choices for yourself. Were you able to keep any of your clients? I was able to keep some of them for sure. My biggest opportunity at that point and sort of really the one of the triggering uh, decision points for me was to work with a few uh, contingency fees clients. And so that was really where I was shifting. A lot of my practice over the course of my career prior to that had been working with uh, existing clients of the firm when patent litigation or other IT litigation would come up. Um, And that would be challenging, right? Because then you would get into origination issues and, and that sort of thing. So for me, it's really given me an opportunity to build, you know, my practice in the way that I want. It also has alleviated for me, and I, I don't think this is any different for anyone else, uh, a lot of the conflict issues that I've been running into. So, you know, currently I represent everything from individuals to, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, and that was not something that was feasible when I was part of a larger organization. How does your life compare now, having your own small firm, your, your transition period and, and your time in big law in terms of in terms of your lifestyle, in terms of your compensation, in terms of, you know, your overall, I guess, satisfaction as a lawyer, those various areas? Well, I've been able to maintain uh, the quality of the work that I'm doing, compensation, all of that hasn't really altered. Um, I would say that, and this is where I really chuckle when folks talk about 
potentially it being a work work life balance reason that women start firms. If anything, my work life balance has not has has deteriorated on some level. Uh, part of that, though, is because, like I said, the entrepreneurial bug has hit. We have started Women Own Law, uh, which is an idea that I conceived of very shortly after starting my firm, and you know has been a, a significant undertaking. Although I have a terrific team working with me, and then uh, within the last year, uh, as an adjunct to my practice, particularly my trade secret counseling practice, I'm actually in the process of working on a legal technology startup. So I've gone from having, you know, one job to three. (laughs) If you even assume that my law firm, both running it and practicing law, is just one. I heard similar things from a lot of the women that I spoke to. It's not, I don't think any of them told me that they're sort of like, you know, chilling at home really early in the evenings now. They're, they might have, I think the big thing, um, and I think Nicole, you mentioned this, was that, you know, having control over your destiny. So, it, you know, controlling the compensation and also just controlling the hours. So, you know, a lot of the women say they work more, but they're, you know, a little bit more in control of when they're working because it's like anyone who's, if you're your own boss, you can sort of control your schedule, you know, to a greater degree. Nicole launched her firm just a couple of years ago. You know, Peggy started her firm about 10 years ago. Meanwhile, you know, today, slightly over 50% of law students are now women. Uh, How much have things changed for women in big law over the last, say, 10 years? Um, so there, there are some more women in big law, but it's actually been a pretty slow change. Uh, I just took a look at the most recent ABA snapshot um, of women in the profession, and that's they compile a lot of statistics from other organizations. Um, and specifically, you know, so according to the, the American Bar Association, women make up 36% of the legal profession, and they're about 346 of ABA uh, members. But in big law, you have about 48%, 49% of summer associates, and then about 45% of associates are women. Partners, there's a huge drop off still. And that has risen ever so slightly. I think about 10 years ago, we're maybe looking in the high teens of percentage of women in uh, partnerships. Now it's about 22% and uh, about 18% in uh, equity partnerships and also 18% of managing partners at the top 200 law firms. So that has risen slightly over the past decade, but very slowly and a lot more slowly than in other areas like in in in-house. There's now 25% of women GCs, just over 30% of law school deans are women. And in the federal judiciary, there's actually been a pretty big increase for about, depending on what level of the, of the court system, about 33 to 35% of federal judges are women. So at this point, big law in those top leadership positions is released very behind the rest of the, the legal industry. You've talked to law firms and you've, you've brought them these numbers. They're aware of these numbers. What do they say when you, when you approach them? A lot of them say that, you know, they're aware of the numbers and they're, they're trying. That's, you know, the sort of the answer is that they're, they, they know that this is a problem. And I think there's been a lot more creative solutions that I've seen recently. And there's sort of a a common answer is, you know, we have a women's committee. We look at this, we have some women and a lot of law firms are sort of quick to point to the few women that they have in uh, leadership positions and, you know, that women are able to break those barriers. But 
there's still, I think there's a frustration um, on a lot of, with a lot of law firm leaders that I've spoken to where they know that this is a problem and they, they're not really quite sure how to fix it because some of it might be structural or systemic and we're starting to get into areas where we need to address implicit bias and that's a lot harder to fix than, you know, you can't just put a policy in place to suddenly change all the biases um, of the individual people in your law firm. Nicole? Somewhat sad, I suppose, but, you know, hearing the statistics from the last 10 years, I started my practice uh, or practicing law in 1992, so 20, we just celebrated our 25th uh, law school reunion. Um, certainly, there are changes from from then, but it's really been glacial. Uh, and, you know, at this point, I've been out of big law, particularly for seven years, but, you know, talking to a lot of women who have more recently come out or who are still there, uh, I, I don't know that there's been a lot of significant structural change. And even if there is a lot of desire to change and hope to change, which I, I believe there genuinely is. I mean, I've spoken with law firm leaders about it, and they are frustrated. Um, as, as Stephanie was mentioning, some of it is implicit bias. And some of it has to do with the billable hour, which, you know, ultimately it's how much you work is how many, you know, is, is directly related to a lot of things. Um, at least for the more junior level. Um, when it gets into origination issues and access to clients, inherited clients, like in Peggy's story, that's where it gets a lot more complicated. Uh, some of it could be practice areas that are being chosen. Um, I've had some interesting conversations, this is all through my work with Women in Law, with uh, a couple of diversity folks, um, both in law firms and, and outside. And, you know, there are apparently statistics showing that women are still, for example, maybe steered towards practice areas that are smaller in firms um, that are not uh, as likely to be a practice area where they can make partner, for instance, um, or develop larger books of business. So there's so many different, I think, factors and reasons that contribute to the end result that it is a bit overwhelming. Um, There is a statistic also that I know, Stephanie, you and I talked about at one point, I think it's null that uh, has disseminated this study maybe about a year ago, that when you look at, uh, just even in terms of developing books of business, whether the study looked at whether um, women were benefited from a marketing and business development perspective being in a law firm versus men. And when they accounted for, you know, all other factors, it broke down a lot by gender. And, you know, my my recollection of the general thrust of the study was that for most women, being in a law firm did nothing for them in terms of being able to generate business. It was something that, and that's certainly consistent uh, with the experience of folks that I know, that, that whatever business they were able to generate was on their own, either because they created a unique specialty or relationships that they had, et cetera. And a lot of times it was new clients, which, you know, conventional wisdom, a lot easier to get business, additional business from an existing client than to try to convert and obtain a new client. So, you know, you have that sort of immediately difficult challenge. Whereas for men, at least according to what we see with these statistics, being in a law firm was great. There was cross-selling. There was uh, folks being invited to participate in pitches. There was inclusion in RFPs. Now, certainly there are some efforts, particularly driven by the clients, uh, like the inclusion initiative that 
that a number of companies are belong to right now um, that are trying to address some of those issues. But it's so endemic that I think it's a real challenge. Um, and, you know, so I think it's not unnatural to, for women to look at it and say, you know, I'm really not benefiting from remaining in this environment. I'm not being, you know, handed clients. I'm having to fight, like in Peggy's story, for, you know, business that I'm bringing in. Since I'm pretty much doing this myself, I might as well go just do it myself elsewhere and keep whatever I bring in. Nicole, had you made partner at either of the firms that you were at? Not my first one. I was a junior associate, but I was a at the second when I left Pepper Hamilton. When you left Pepper. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, though, is that, you know, this numbers as of 2016, right, 22% of the overall partnership were women. So I'm just, I'm also wondering more specifically, we're talking about women who have made partner and are choosing to leave. What what do firms say about that? I mean, a lot of the conversations I had, they didn't really address that specifically. Um, I know that um, Hillary Bass, who's a co-president of Greenberg Traurig and the incoming ABA president, She's going to be uh, taking over next month. She has um, this huge study that she's planning and it's going to be rolling it out in the fall, looking specifically at women, sort of like, you know, like career life cycles of women in the law, specifically looking at women who leave the law and not just law firms to go to, you know, their own firms, women who just leave the legal profession when they're like, when they're 50, you know, they've made partner, they're established in their career, they're, you know, the way she put it, sort of at the peak of their career. And that's when law firms should, you know, want to keep them around. A lot of them are leaving at that time. And she knows that that's happening. You know, there's studies that have shown that and she's going to be trying to look at where they're going, why they're leaving, what's going on. So I'm really interested to see what they find. We're looking at law. That's the that's the industry that we cover. Have you looked at other industries and seen how, how does law compare? Yeah, well, the, a lot of the discussions are very similar in, you know, sort of like the tech world and Silicon Valley. I think it's interesting. And this is more sort of another piece of the puzzle. Um, there's been a lot of you know, litigation against law firms recently, sort of um, some women have brought suits uh, at the partner level alleging that they're, you know, uh, there's a pay discrimination, uh, that they're getting paid a lot less than male partners. And there are a lot of commonalities there with like, uh, you know, VC, the Ellen Powell case against Kleiner Perkins that was a couple years ago now, where a lot of there's, you know, the allegation might be discrimination or over the, you know, the wage gap because it's something concrete that you can, you know, maybe prove in court. But a lot of sort of like the cultural and structural stuff problems are very similar that you hear in a lot of male dominated industries where it's women saying that they're dealing with these general structures that were maybe um, men are, you know, getting more likely to benefit from the marketing department, uh, like Nicole was saying, or there was a study that I was just reading in the Harvard Business Review published about a month ago. In Sweden, they analyze um, VCs listening to pitches from men and women that men were, uh, on average, got about 50% of the money they wanted and women got about 25% of the money they wanted just because of sort of the way that they were perceived, you know, young youth was positive for men and sort of a drawback for women. And a lot of that's cultural, that's biases, that's, you know, that's going to happen in any industry that's that happens in big corporate environments too so that you know i think that that is a lot of those problems are not specific to law um just sort of women come are going to be butting up against these uh, types of problems. And a lot of the women I spoke to for this story said, you know, it wasn't like some major singular moment of discrimination that they faced. They were just sort of like 
um, you know, water on a stone or a mosquito bites, a lot of these sorts of metaphors that I heard for like just day to day stuff of like, you know, feeling slighted in the meeting or like not getting that invitation to that, you know, dinner with the client or, or just comments, offhanded comments from, you know, people in leadership positions that over the course of like a 20 year career, even, you know, women that had made partner that were really successful in their firm just sort of said, you know, I'm tired. I'd rather do this on my own. And that's the sort of thing that you might hear from women, I think, in any, you know, big, you know, high powered career. Do we have numbers on how many women owned law firms there are? And and of those, how many have been started by former big law lawyers? I haven't been able to find them, actually. They're, and that's something, uh, Nicole, I know that you're working on trying to to find out the numbers. Uh, there are about just under 200 members of NAMWOLF. Um, that's the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms. But that's, uh, A, lumps in, you know, um, minority-owned firms and women-owned firms together. And that doesn't really accurately measure how many firms there are because you, there's sort of a very specific, you have to have at least three people and you have to be certified as women owned and you know, there's a whole process. So that right. you say like uh, three people, three women, how do you constitute like what? Yeah. Makes well, that's, I mean, the definition. So there are lots of different definitions. Uh, there's some definitions that, you know, you can get officially certified. I think it's 51%. Nicole, correct me if I'm wrong. And I know that you are um, sort of taking a different view of that with women owned law and how you're sort of creating your membership base. That's correct, yeah. It is 51% to be certified. Um, for us, we we actually have a couple of different ways in which, which we're different from a definitional standpoint. Uh, one that we, we decided on, though, is that we would go with, for now, 50% uh, women-owned, uh, so either held by one or, you know, group of women. In our view, since the certification process is available and we didn't want to get in the business of doing that or checking it, and we also didn't want to be limiting. We want to be inclusive. Um, and given the nature of partnerships in the law, you know, it's... It's kind of an arbitrary figure if you have two owners in a law firm and their partners. And so for the sake of getting that, you know, certification, one gets 51 percent and one gets 49. And we know some very uh, prominent women owned firms or at least women founded, women led firms where the owners refused to make that choice and, and wanted to, you know, be in a true partnership. So, um so we went with that definition, although I'll be honest, given the rather abysmal statistics in large firms, you know, there were some of us who felt like anything between even 30% to 50%, you know, if it was women-founded, women-led, there could be an argument made that you might want to consider that a woman-owned firm. Uh, we, we really choose to focus on women entrepreneurs in the law generally and, and not just law firms um, because what we're seeing is that, uh, you know, a lot of, first of all, lawyers who are starting their own firms, such as myself, end up with ancillary businesses for one reason or another or end up transitioning into uh, some other type of, of business, whether it's legal tech or staffing. And you're hoping to count the number of women-owned firms eventually, right? Yeah. It, it's So we're, we've decided um, to start, first of all, with our own members, of course, and at this point we're somewhere around 90, um, which has been really just totally by word of mouth and not a concerted effort yet on our part. Um, and and we do we have individual as well as uh, firm memberships, but I'd say most of those represent 
separate and distinct firms. Um, we have seen recently, I think there was one article that tried to pull some census data from 2012, came up with a number of around 29,000 being the number of women-owned firms. I haven't really been able to verify that. Um, and it's, you know, it's especially the question of how many of these are big, big law refugees, what's the nature of the practice? I mean, those are really, to me, in many ways, the more interesting questions. Um, I can tell you that what we have seen, at least in terms of the women who are being attracted to our organization, uh, there's sort of two commonalities. Number one, a lot of them are big law refugees or have those types of practices. Um, and that's not to say there aren't, you know, I'm sure there are tons of women who have their own firms who have different types of practices, but that's just what we're seeing. Uh, but the other thing that we're seeing is these are generally very well-established attorneys, you know, partners in, in law firms, whether large or small, um, and like you said, far into their practices, to typically around 50, give or take. Um, and so, you know, we're coming to this. It's, it's really not for the faint of heart. And so... Um, we want to try to sort of understand more about the folks who are doing this, what's, you know, what types of practices are there, et cetera. But that data is not out there. It just really isn't. And to me, that actually highlights part of the problem. That's all for the first part of our conversation about women who leave big law to start their own firms. We'll be back soon with the second episode of this two-part podcast. For more on the business of law, check out biglawbusiness.com. If you'd like to contact us, our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow Women Owned Law on Twitter at Women Owned Law. Follow Stephanie at S. Russell Craft. And follow me at Josh Block NYC. Thank you to Sarah Patterson for recording our podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with the second part of this two-part series. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it. This episode was brought to you by DMX, made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, Epic. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com slash DMX.